This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to tonight's colloquium. The title of this colloquium is Authorship, Appropriation, and the Fluid Text, Versions of the Law. My name is Jenna McWilliams, and I'm the Curriculum Specialist for Project New Media Literacies, and I am thrilled to introduce John Bryant and Wendy Seltzer tonight. John Bryant teaches at Hofstra University. His work explores the larger applications of the notion of the fluid text to culture, and in particular, identity formation in a multicultural democracy. He's a textual scholar and Melville specialist whose works include the fluid text and Melville unfolding, sexuality, politics, and the versions of Taipei. He's the editor with associate editor Wynne Kelly of Leviathan, a journal of Melville studies and of the Melville Electronic Library. He's a co-editor of the Longman Critical Edition of Moby Dick, and he's currently working on a critical biography of Melville. Wendy Seltzer is a fellow at Harvard University's Berkman Center for Internet and Society and is a visiting professor at American University. She's taught internet law, copyright, and information privacy at Brooklyn Law School and was a visiting fellow with the Oxford Internet Institute. Previously, she was a staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, specializing in intellectual property and First Amendment issues. She founded and leads the Chilling Effects Clearinghouse, helping Internet users to understand the rights in response to cease and desist threats and to research the effects of these threats on free expression. Wendy serves as an advisor to the Citizen Media Law Project and on the board of directors of the TOR Project, supporting privacy and anonymity research and technology. We're thrilled to have both of these scholars here tonight, and uh, please join me in welcoming John Bryant and Wendy Seltzer. Uh, Wendy and I flipped a coin, and I lost, so I get to go first. Um, I, first of all, I want to thank um, all of you uh, for um, having, having me here. Uh, some of you have read some of my um, uh, contributions and um, have been very generous in in uh, praising them, so I, I want to thank you as well, and um, and Henry and William for uh, having this uh, wonderful center um, and uh, for media literacy. Um, I guess what I want to do uh, for uh, a few minutes is, um, first of all, to kind of extemporize a little bit on uh, the larger ideas that um, I'm bringing to the table. And, um, and then I'd like to read to you uh, a, a little bit of a, a work that's a work in progress that uh, I've just finished. Um, and uh, that uh, I think will be uh, relevant to what we're talking about today. And I hope you like it. So a little bit of uh, general talk and then some more uh, paper talk. But um, I guess what I wanted to sort of do is sort of lay out um, the general propositions of uh, what I'm interested in, uh, which cluster around the idea of a fluid text. And uh, this is a term that I um, uh, use to describe any literary work, or any written work actually, um, or any work for that matter, uh, that exists in multiple versions. Now for me, um, versions can, can be defined in all kinds of ways, and that's 
part of the problem, part of the critical endeavor that needs to be engaged by more people. Um, and, but for me, uh, it really is, uh, has to do with revision. But what kinds of revision are there? So authors can revise what they have created. Um, editors can come in and make suggested revisions and, or coerced revisions. Uh, publishers can expurgate and that's, or censor, and that's not fun, but that's a version, nevertheless, as insidious as it might be. Then um, adapters will come along and change uh, a novel like Moby Dick into a stage play, uh, as Orson Welles did, or turn it into a film, as John Barrymore did, uh, or as John Huston did. And um, children's writers will come along and take the whole story of Moby Dick and create a picture book, and that's a version. And um, uh, scholars will come along and they will edit um, Moby Dick and change the words, and that's a revision, and that's a version. So um, all of this kind of presents us with a problem of, you know, uh, and, and, and here's a trick question, which is the real version? And uh, like with all trick questions, of course, ha, ha, you know, it's, the trick is, well, they're all the same. They're all real. They all have meaning, and they're all useful. But we all know that there's a certain um, valence that we give to authorship as being the authentic version, and therefore the version. And um, that presents us with... Do we give priority to that just simply because the author happened to put it down? Well, then when you take a look at the author's manuscripts and different editions that an author puts out, the author changes words all the time. In manuscript, uh, the first edition is, is there, but then it turns out Melville, for his first novel, Typee, was complicit in the expurgation of his own novel. He wanted it expurgated because it would sell more. Well, you know, you could say that's not ethical, but it's his book. So you can see what the problems are going to be. I've also started getting into questions about different kinds of ways of conceiving of, of versions. For instance, and this is where uh, the issue of plagiarism uh, and appropriation might come in, is quotation a form of version? That is, when I quote you, and take your words out of the text that you have created, and I take those words and I plop them into my words, am I not in some kind of way creating a version of you within my text? In other words, I'm, I'm taking your text and I'm actually giving it new meaning and a new presence and a different presence because it's located in my text. So quotation can be, for, be a form of versions as well. And that's, in a sense, one of the things that I, I want to... I think that will bring us to plagiarism a little bit. And that's sort of um, uh, part one of, of what I wanted to say. I've got a few uh, PowerPoint slides here that... Um, let's just hope to God they pop up here. Now, in Moby Dick, it turns out Melville did an awful lot of quotation. 
but he didn't put quotes around the, the words. And golly, uh, well, Shakespeare did this too. You know, he completely ripped off Montaigne in, in order to to write a scene of the Tempest. And so, if Shakespeare can do it, then Melville can do it, and it's all right. And when uh, when I was in in college, professors would try to deal with this issue of uh, authors plagiarizing and uh, as opposed to students plagiarizing in class. Not that anybody ever did that back in my day. And the, the, uh, the assumption was, well, Shakespeare can do this because he's improving the text. He's doing something better with it. And I thought that was inherently false. That was just really uh, an immoral statement to, to, to sort of make that that distinction, because it was confusing um, on all sorts of levels. Um, Melville does this too, and he does it in, in ways that we are only now in, in the 20th century, and in, well, <laughs> here we are in the 20th century, um, uh, uh, post-World post War II era, um, scholars are beginning to discover more and more how much Melville and where he might have been appropriating little bits of text, things that I would call quotation without, without the quotes. And here's one example, and this comes from a chapter called The Advocate in Moby Dick. And the paragraph, which you can barely read there, is um, taken from um, a source by um, Thomas Beale, who wrote a history of the sperm whale. And... Um, Here's a little bit of a better view of that original text. Beale um, writes about Australia in this, and, and basically Melville's point and Beale's point before him was that whalers were the vanguard of colonialism. They came to Australia and uh, to, to, to hunt some whales, but in doing so, they also provided provisions and help to um, uh, settlers uh, uh, and missionaries on, uh, on the continent of Australia. So the uh, passages from Beale's book I've sort of lifted out um, and underscored in order to sort of highlight the material that, that Melville uh, is taking. Not only is he taking the general idea but he actually ends up taking certain bits and pieces of words. You'll see here in the first, uh, uh, first selection up there, it is a fact, uh, five lines down, that the original settlers at Botany Bay were more than once saved from starvation by the timely arrival of some whaling vessels. And you'll notice that in Beale's version, he's, he's put emphasis on the word starvation. And then in uh, the middle selection there, I don't have to read the whole thing, go down about four lines. They carried out people to reside upon them and established a regular communication between them and our own country by which the wants of the primitive settlers could be supplied and their persons protected. And then um, in the final selection down there, uh, Melville seemed to be interested in this. And if missionaries have gone to reside among these people with a view of spreading, more the, uh, uh, spreading among them a belief in the Christian faith. Now, 
this, um, this is sort of a, a mock-up facsimile behind here of, of Melville's actual text, which was uh, recent, fairly recently discovered. And um, in this facsimile, the, um, uh, the actual source book was marked up. I mean, in the original, it was actually marked up by Melville. Well, he drew a line down there, and you can sort of see a line in the back, in the back there. And he put in his handwriting, dignity of whaling. And so we, we know without a doubt that he read this book, that he marked this book, and that he did it. Um, this, this underlining, of course, is, is mine. I'm just underlining it for uh, purposes. There are no other Melville underlinings in this text. But if you take a look and you put side by side, on the left, the material that I just read to you, um, and you take a look at the paragraph that I had originally boxed for you, you can see um, little significant liftings. Now, bear in mind, the whole paragraph really, in a sense, kind of follows um, Beale, that whalers were the vanguard of colonialism in, uh, the, in the Pacific. But take a look at um, these underlined passages right in the middle there, about six lines down. Moreover, in the infancy, this is Melville. Moreover, in the infancy of the first Australian settlement, the emigrants were several times saved from starvation. And that is a direct quote, saved from starvation, by the benevolent biscuit of the whale ship luckily dropping an anchor in their waters. Um, now, I underlined benevolent biscuit there for you to, I just want to plant that as a seed for a moment. Um, and if you go further on down, you'll see another curious kind of thing. Um, let's read the whole passage, because I love to read Melville, don't you? I thought, <laughs> the uncounted isles of all Polynesia confess the same truth and do commercial homage to the whale ship that cleared the way for the missionary and the merchant and in many cases carried the primitive missionaries to their first destinations. Now notice the words primitive and missionaries. And what seems to be happening here is a curious kind of appropriation. It's a sort of cut and paste. Why would he do that? Why would he take Beale's primitive settlers, and the word missionaries, which is both there and on a later page and throughout, and kind of put them together and use the term primitive missionaries. Now, I know what a primitive settler is. It's a settler who first came to Australia, primitive in the sense of primary. But when you talk about missionaries, and you know a little bit about Melville's bad, sad history with missionaries because they hated him, for what he said in Taipei. And what he said in Taipei was, missionaries have destroyed the Pacific in, the Poly in Polynesia. And they were the ones who complained so bitterly in reviews about Taipei, which was Melville's first book, that he was constrained to expurgate that novel. Uh, well, I said before, he, he was complicit in this, and he agreed to do it. But it was pressure from them. And here in Moby Dick, five books later, suddenly these missionaries kind of get back into the text and they're primitive. And I think there's a little private dig that's going on there. Let's get back to that benevolent biscuit. Yeah, they come along and they're saving these people. Here comes the ship, the whaling ship, 
and these people are starving to death and the ship comes in and what does the ship give them? Well, yes, it keeps them from starvation with a biscuit and it's a benevolent one, you know. There's some sort of uh, dig in there too. Well, um, this is, um, uh, I got to thinking about this particular kind of appropriation and what it seemed to me that is going on here is that while it's quite clear that he's plagiarizing, it's also quite clear that he's critiquing at the same time. And so the plagiarism um, blends and bleeds into the critique, and the critique is actually um, uh, ironizes this process. Now, I don't, I'm not offering this as a justification. I don't see this as an improvement on Beale, but I see it as having a different strategy. And the strategy is, number one, to get back at the, uh, the missionaries, number two, to stick it to colonialism, and number three, to stick it to Thomas Beale because he seemed to be a kind of a fatuous believer in all of this sort of stuff. Well, I might be romanticizing my, my view of Melville, but that's okay. I can kind of perceive some kind of a strategy going on here that makes it something different from just a plagiarism. Um, this leads me to the larger question of how do we deal with these sorts of things. I would say that what we have here is Melville's version of Beale. It's a quotation, it's an appropriation, but also it's his version of Beale. But it's also an anti-Beale Beale. You know, it's designed in some sort of way to talk back to Beale. It's a further continuation of a discourse. And in some sense, there is a blurring of boundaries between the texts. He doesn't use quotation marks to signal to you that he has uh, appropriated a text. But what he does here is he uses a text in such a way with that benevolent biscuit and that primitive missionary in a way to, un uh, to sort of deconstruct the original Beale. So uh, we have clear texts, but where is the boundary and how do you comprehend what's going on here. And one of the things that I say in the uh, essay that, that some of you have read is that you, um, uh, the texts uh, are like individual selves. And we apply to, uh, to individual selves the same kinds of ethics that we would apply to ourselves. And primary among those uh, ideas would be to know thyself. That our obligation, and I'm sort of doing a Kantian thing here. Our obligation, our duty is in a sense to know yourself, to know who you are, to know where your self ends and another self begins and to know the boundaries and to know the boundaries within yourself of the different selves that are within you. Um, that might sound a little psychotic, but, <laughs> but I'm sure here at MIT you're able to deal with that. Um, so, the, the question is, the texts are sort of the same kind of thing, that uh, you write a text and you know it's your text and you know it's a text and you know it's your version. But you also know where the boundaries are within it and so on. So is there evidence here that Melville knows the boundaries, that he's not in some sort of way uh, performing an unconscious plagiarism? And I would contend that he does. Well, that's Melville ripping off from uh, a source. What I want to do is uh, to go quickly to um, a second um, thing in which um, 
an individual creates a version of Melville for his own argument. Um, and um, this, uh, I hope, will go quickly. Um, and here's the text that I promised that I would read to you. And I apologize that I have to read it. But Less than a week after the attacks of September 11th, 2001, the London Observer published Edward Said's editorial condemning the, quote, senseless destruction based on the misguided, quote, religious and political abstractions and reductive myths of terrorists. Said appealed for more sense and less claptrap in exposing the roots of terror in injustice so that terrorists, quote, may be isolated, deterred, or put out of business. But, he argued, the media's conversion of Osama bin Laden into a symbol of all that is loathsome diverts attention from the imperialist causes of injustice onto the agents of destruction. Perhaps with the thought that Ahab, too, has no concern for whether the white whale is the principal or agent of malignancy, Said made the following comparison, quote, Collective passions are being funneled into a drive, um, are being, being funneled into a drive for war that uncannily resembles Captain Ahab in pursuit of Moby Dick. That's Captain Ahab to the left. Yeah. The further implication was that the Bush administration had become derailed by its benighted anger over a seemingly inexplicable affront to its imperial power. Okay. Well, two le weeks later, Said was asked to clarify his references to Melville. Ahab, he explained, will pursue Moby Dick to the ends of the earth. His mission is suicidal. George Bush, he continued, has a similarly apocalyptic vision. He has made bin Laden into, quote, a symbol of all that is evil. And like Moby Dick, he will be falsely viewed as something, quote, mythological, requiring extraordinary, even criminal reaction. Bin Laden is nothing more than a man who must be brought to justice. But to crystallize his argument concerning America's reactionary thinking, Said describes Ahab's death, quote, in the final scene of the novel, Captain Ahab is being borne out to sea, wrapped around the white whale with the rope of his own harpoon, and going obviously to his death. It was a scene of almost suicidal finality. And so in that, what you see is America strapped to the whale. The powerful image underscores Said's point that America's obsession to kill rather than know the terrorist is America's undoing. Like Ahab, we are tangled to a beast of our own creation. But in fact, the final scene Said recounts is not in Moby Dick. Ahab's departure in Melville's version is not so dramatic. In the chase, this is one of my <laughs> favorite <laughs> illustrations. In the chase third day, Ahab harpoons Moby Dick, and as the white whale races away, the line attached to him whizzes out of the tub in Ahab's whaleboat. A kink in the line creates a flying loop that seizes Ahab by the neck, garrets him, 
and zips him into the sea. He simply disappears swiftly, silently, anticlimactically. Ahab's demise occurs so quickly and in only the one sentence that readers caught up in the whaling battle can miss it. What with Melville's effort to stage Ahab as if he were Macbeth or Lear, even to include defiant and pensive soliloquies, an attendant mad fool named Pip, and three predictions of death, despite all of these Shakespearean claptrap, we expect more sound and fury. But Melville does not deliver. In Melville's version of Moby Dick, Ahab is gone before we know it. Given, uh, well, except in this, this version of it. <laughs> I, th- I, I don't remember his actually saying, but I'm pretty sure he, he thought it. <laughs> Given the novel's problematic symbology, it is fitting that Ahab is killed silently by a symbol. The line, in, in the chapter called The Line, Ishmael explains how perilous the whale line is. If not properly coiled in its tub, it becomes a noose that can take your arm or take you down. Although the monkey rope, another chapter, connects and preserves the crew, um, that's a different kind of line. The whale line in the tub is a halter around the neck, one that Melville pointedly orientalizes. The line takes Ahab out voicelessly, quote, voicelessly as Turkish mutes bowstring their victim, end quote. And earlier, Ahab's prophetic Parsi Fadala, pictured here, tells Ahab that only hemp can destroy him. And by hemp, he means not what you smoke, but the, the rope that uh, is made out of hemp. Do, do people still smoke hemp these days? <laughs> Only, um, uh, Ahab says, that, uh, only hemp can destroy him. Only hemp, quote, a dusky, dark fellow, a sort of Indian, and the fabric of the line. Thus, in Melville's death scene, Ahab is not entangled by lines on the symbolic whale. He is strangled by a symbolic line intimately linked to Fadala, the orientalized emblem of Ahab's fate. And you need to recall that um, Edward Said is the author of a book called Orientalism, and this is kind of interesting, I think. Of course, this emblematic line is integral to Said's re- rewriting of Ahab's demise. He sees Ahab wrapped around the white whale with the rope of his own harpoon so that the impression of Ahab's and America's fatal obsession with the terroristic whale is secondarily associated with a rope of his own undoing much like the prophesied ironic death by hemp realized in Moby Dick. But Saeed's image is not a misremembering of the entanglement of the strangulation in Melville's text. Rather, he derives it from, his memory is quite perfect, he derives it from the powerful conclusion of John Huston's 1956 film, Moby Dick. In this version, Ahab harpoons Moby Dick, falls into the sea, and climbs onto the back of the whale, which is wrapped in whale lines. The whale submerges with Ahab stabbing away, and when it surfaces, the drowned Ahab is tangled in the harpoon lines as if crucified. The rocking of the whale imparts movement to Ahab's lifeless arm, which beckons the crew. Emboldened, they attack, but are obliterated by the infuriated whale. The end. 
This rendition of Ahab's death is powerful cinema, but not entirely invented. In struggling to make a judicious redaction of Melville's novel, screenwriter Ray Bradbury had removed Fadala altogether, and his decision to eradicate the Parsi, which is another name for Fadala, and the dense imprecation of Orientalist allusion he represents constitutes a politically significant revision strategy. Even so, one vestige of Fadala remains in the film, his death. Having given Fadala the heave-ho, as he put it in one of several variant retellings of his rewriting of Moby Dick, Bradbury assigned to Ahab the death scene Melville had given to Fadala. That's my addition, claims Bradbury. That's not Melville. I eliminated Fadala and, follow, and allowed Moby Dick to come into direct contact with Ahab. Bradbury's account from memory is itself a subtle revision of his actual revision process. In fact, Melville does not depict Fadala's death in his novel. Uh, the Parsi is simply reported missing in chap uh, the second day chapter, Chase, uh, Chase chapter. And Stubb only thinks he saw him tangled uh, to Moby Dick. However, Melville recounts Fadala's return on the third day lashed round and round to the fish's back, pinioned in the turns upon turns in which during the past night the whale had reeled the involutions of the lines around him. The half-torn body of the Parsi was seen, his distended eyes turned full upon old Ahab. So um, what I want to do is cut this short here so that we can go on. But basically what what... Uh, I wanted to sort of do is pose to you um, this situation where Bradbury rewrites Moby Dick to create a screenplay. Houston changes the screenplay a little bit to create a film. There are little differences between the two, but basically what happens in the movie is that Fadala is completely dropped and all Orientalism is gone from the, from the movie. Um, and, but the one vestige of Fidala that remains is in this death scene. So you can see the, the, the two illustrations there. Um, and so in a sense, there is uh, something that's going on there with that. But then several decades later, Said, thinking he's talking about Moby Dick, is actually talking about this picture here in his mind. And, uh, is making a statement about the eradication of Islam when he's quoting a version that is itself a textual eradication of Islam. So we've got two different kinds of, um, of quotation here. Melville's version of Beale and Said's version of, of Houston. That sort of thing. So um, um, let me hand over the mic to, to Wendy and get this out of the way. Can you just... I'm going to get this.
I'm good. Great. Uh, well, thanks. That was fascinating and really illustrates for me uh, the, the great deal of discourse and dialogue that goes on in uh, artistic conversation and uh, the distance between that and the law, which is what I know well, uh, and the way the law looks at appropriation and uh, uh, rather than as conversation, uh, the, the legal question is, is there a reproduction of copyrighted expression? Um, and uh, was there a reproduction or a derivative work created from an original author's expression uh, that goes beyond the, the meets and bounds of fair use? Uh, so the copying might be excused uh, as fair use uh, if it... Um, meet statutory factors of uh, the purpose and character of the use, the nature of the copyrighted work, uh, the amount and substantiality of the portion used, and the effect on the market uh, for the original. Um, but these are judged by uh, judges who are experts in the law and not in the art, uh, and uh, juries of their peers, but peers drawn from the general community, not from an artistic community um, or a community of practice. Um, and so uh, the law often seems uh, ill-suited to these more fluid categories of borrowing and reuse. Um, and uh, so copyright, in the name of promoting the progress of science, um, is developed uh, in, the, in American law to give an incentive to, to authors. And um, we've proceeded on uh, a very unitary conception of how art is created. Um, artists work for that monetary uh, incentive, and uh, the artists, uh, as envisioned by the law, incentive is always for the copyright to get longer and longer and broader and stronger. Uh, so that copyright uh, now lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years, giving uh, a very long uh, period of monopoly control over uh, that artwork. And uh, because of uh, the, the possibility of legal threats uh, can operate to, to chill follow-on expression, even when at the end of the day we might come down on the side of fair use, uh, even when we might be able to persuade uh, a judge that, uh, and jury that the use was uh, fair, the, uh, the mere threat of lawsuit is often enough to get uh, speech stopped uh, or to stop someone from going in a direction uh, involving copying uh, to begin with. Um, and uh, that means that we lose a lot from our public conversation. Uh, we lose the ability to, uh, to borrow, to engage in a full multimedia conversation uh, with one another, uh, to, to engage in what Terry Fisher refers to as semiotic democracy, taking the symbols that others have made uh, into public symbols and reusing them in our own conversation. Uh, and as our conversation goes online, 
uh, with YouTube and uh, weblogs and websites. Uh, that's increasingly a multimedia conversation. And, and uh, the, uh, the, the law is, uh, is often uh, stifling that conversation, I want to argue. And the law uh, is too rigid for uh, the nuance of the artistic discussion. Um, the, the norms of the artistic community, I argue, work better to uh, delineate the bounds of fair copying uh, versus plagiarism. That's an ethical question. Uh, that's a question of, has the author appropriately referenced his sources, uh, either by uh, named attribution or by indications in the text that uh, he's borrowing uh, from another source? Uh, is it within the norms of uh, that artistic community? So uh, in some uh, uh, modern art uh, fields, the appropriation is itself part of the artwork. The pushing against the, the taking without permission uh, adds to, to the vibrancy of the artwork. Uh, the law can't possibly keep up with all of these different uh, community understandings um, and uh, can't uh, and often doesn't, uh, when it's called in, distinguish between uh, the ethical use and the, uh, the unethical plagiarism uh, or the, the, the fair use or uh, the fair use versus infringement uh, distinction uh, is drawn along different axes. Um, so moving from uh, semiotic democracy into uh, American democracy, I want to pull up a few examples uh, from our uh, recent political uh, election season um, and uh, show some uh, current fair use debates and uh, uh, they're playing out. So um, John McCain in running his presidential campaign uh, uh, along with Barack Obama made great uh, and frequent use of video uh, it wasn't enough for them just to put television advertisements on television broadcasted uh, into the home. Uh, but each of them also created a YouTube channel uh, where uh, viewers and constituents who were particularly interested could go and uh, watch more of these videos on their own, uh, could add to the comment threads expressing their support or uh, dislike for the candidate. Um, and. Uh, engage themselves more in, uh, in the processes of democracy. They could engage with the candidates. And so uh, McCain put up uh, several of his television commercials on, uh, on the YouTube website and uh, received takedown notices from copyright holders claiming that some of those videos uh, infringed copyright, uh, specifically the, uh, the CBS uh, network, Fox Network and the Christian Broadcasting Network uh, each claimed to YouTube that uh, some of those videos uh, posted by the McCain campaign infringed uh, their copyrights because in uh, posting his advertisements, in creating his advertisements, McCain had drawn some video from the 
network news broadcasts where he had been interviewed or where uh, anchors were saying something about him and his campaign to engage in the political discourse around those videos, uh, around those net broadcasts, he had incorporated little clips uh, into uh, his campaign advertisements, sometimes to rebut them or comment on them, sometimes just to show them. Um, and in their sweep of the YouTube website, the uh, these broadcasting networks had identified these videos as infringing. Um, well, there's nothing like a claim of infringement to turn uh, a candidate into a staunch defender of fair use. Um, so McCain uh, wrote, uh, the McCain campaign wrote to uh, YouTube uh, suggesting that YouTube should really examine these videos more closely and couldn't they carve out an exception for political speech? And uh, the issues presented by YouTube and other internet technologies are new. Uh, the need to prevent meritless copyright claims from chilling political speech is decidedly not. Uh, I couldn't ask for a better defense of, uh, of fair use here. Uh, but to no avail, YouTube wrote back to uh, McCain campaign, we're sorry, but uh, under the terms of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, we feel compelled to treat everyone equally and to respond to uh, anyone's copyright claims whenever they come in, and uh, the, the DMCA uh, in the setting up safe harbors for uh, online service providers uh, says that the service providers can remain free of copyright liability uh, if they respond expeditiously to notices of claimed infringement by taking down the claimed infringing videos. Uh, and so YouTube removed the videos. The law says uh, for a period of 10 to 14 business days, but uh, in the end stages of a political campaign, 10 to 14 business days is a, a lifetime. Um, so, so McCain protested, uh, but YouTube's response, uh, the real problem here is individuals and entities that abuse the DMCA takedown process. You and other content uploaders can play a critical role in helping us to address this difficult problem uh, of takedown use. Um, we hope that as a content uploader, you've gained a sense of some of the challenges we face every day in operating YouTube, and we look forward to working with Senator or President McCain on ways to combat abuse of the DMCA <laughs> takedown process on YouTube, including, by way of example, strengthening the fair use doctrine so that intermediaries like us can rely on this important doctrine with a measure of business certainty. <laughs> I, too, would, would like to see our Congress uh, work toward that end, uh, because in the absence of that certainty, uh, the service providers feel the need to take this blanket approach. The moment somebody makes a copyright claim, uh, they remove the, the material. Uh, and I see some members of the YouTube project sitting here. Uh, YouTube.mit.edu uh, does an excellent job of cataloging uh, some of the videos that have been removed and the, the, the reasons that YouTube uh, displays to us uh, for their removal. Uh, now, this probably was a fair use. Um, using snippets of a video broadcast in the course of political commentary is uh, clearly a transformative use. It's not substituting for the newscast. Um, you're not 
choosing to watch McCain commercials rather than watch Fox News or uh, Christian Broadcasting <laughs> Network uh, for the same purpose. Um, you're uh, watching the McCain commercials to get his commentary or uh, to s support the candidate. Um, but that debate never gets to take place, or if it does take place, it takes place only after 10 to 14 business days uh, of the video's removal. And sure, McCain could have posted the videos someplace else, but another host would have been subject to the same sort of uh, put it down or face potential nebulous liability claims. Hosts are rarely willing to stand up uh, in that way. Uh, and so we're left here with the uh, please help us by strengthening the fair use doctrine. Um, another uh, case going on right now involving uh, a, a different uh, aspect of fair use questions, uh, the litigation between uh, Shepard Ferry, the street artist who uh, created the iconic uh, Obama Hope poster, depicted there, uh, and the Associated Press, which uh, claims that it owns the copyright uh, in that photograph of uh, then-Senator Obama uh, based on uh, the, the photo, photojournalism of Manny Garcia, a, uh, a, a temporary staffer at the time who took the photograph and uh, w which was, uh, they claim, transformed into the uh, hope image. Um, so uh, as this uh, image gained currency, you've no doubt seen it on the sides of buildings, on uh, posters, on shirts and bags and buttons. Um, the, uh, the Associated Press started making claims that uh, this infringed their copyright. Clearly, they said, uh, the, the photograph uh, what the, the poster was drawn from the photograph. Then um, there are some uh, disputes over which of uh, Garcia's photographs the, the poster was drawn from. Uh, but it, it is fairly clear that uh, some elements were taken from, uh, from these photographs. Uh, but in order to assess whether there's a copyright infringement, we have to ask at least two questions. Uh, was there a taking of copyrightable expression? Uh, after all, Manny Garcia, by snapping a photograph of Senator Obama, doesn't own the image of Obama's face. Uh, that's not copyrightable to anyone. Uh, he doesn't own the idea of Obama against a patriotic background. Uh, that's uh, an idea in the public domain. Um, he doesn't own the pose that Obama took. Um, he, he owns a copyright in the photograph, or the AP does by transfer, um, it, but only in the, express, the particular expressive elements. Uh, so we'd ask whether the, the poster takes those uh, expressive elements, um, and if if so, whether that taking is fair. Uh, is it uh, considering the purpose and character of the use uh, for political advertising and campaigning, uh, the nature of the original uh, as a P 
piece of photojournalism, um, the taking of uh, the whole photograph but transforming it uh, in a way that uh, it's clearly not substituting for uh, photojournalism. Nobody is using these photographs uh, in places where they would otherwise have licensed the, uh, the Associated Press photograph. Uh, they are uh, being used as elements of campaign uh, propaganda and as of celebration uh, of a candidate. Uh, so uh, after the Associated Press uh, made these uh, noises of uh, copyright threat, uh, Shepard Ferry brought a declaratory judgment action uh, asserting that this is fair use. Uh, asserting that this kind of transformation of an image uh, is not something that the copyright law should uh, prevent. And uh, in response, the Associated Press uh, filed its own answer and counterclaim, uh, arguing that, no, this is copyright infringement. He's stealing the, the value of the image uh, for which the Associated Press should be given fair compensation. Um, and uh, Ferry himself uh, acknowledges that it was copied. Uh, he doesn't deny that uh, he borrowed uh, the image. In fact, he says he grabbed the photograph from a Google image search and uh, chose one uh, that he liked. And, and uh, the photographer um, on the Associated Press is out there saying that they want uh, fair compensation. The photographer doesn't seem, uh, at least in interviews uh, that I've seen, to be concerned with uh, compensation so much as recognition. I just want Shepard Ferry to say, all right, you're the guy, thank you. Uh, so he'd like attribution, recognition um, in the process, but that's not an element anywhere in that fair use analysis. Copyright law isn't looking at uh, the ethical questions or the, the questions of attribution, um, but only of how much was taken and for what was it used. And, and uh, so even uh, the lawsuit, if it were to come out in favor of the Associated Press, still might not be giving uh, Manny Garcia what he says he wants uh, as photographer. Um, still not going to extract from Shepard Ferry uh, an acknowledgement that uh, he sees uh, his art as merely appropriative without uh, referencing the, uh, the underlying individuals. Um, and uh, finally, some other uh, sources of transformation of uh, Shepard Ferry's uh, images. Uh, this, this website at obamaicon.me uh, gives you the opportunity to put your own photograph into uh, the, the Shepard Ferry photo manipulator and, <laughs> and, for example, defend fair use with uh, a poster-like representation. Um, so I think um, that I'll stop there and uh, open it up for discussion and uh, and questions uh, from here.
So uh, you guys probably know that we are recording this for a podcast. So if you have a question, I'm just going to ask that you speak into this mic. And I'll carry the mic around. I'll start since I just happen to have the <laughs> microphone. Um, I'm, I'm interested as a former teacher, and I know a lot of people here are either teachers or former teachers, how, given your different approaches to copyright appropriation and versions, how you talk to your students about plagiarism? Seriously. <laughs> um, I think it's, um, uh, I, 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 I do teach, and um, uh, I actually have um, uh, exercises, and I know that similar exercises are, are published in, in textbooks, but I just sort of dreamed up my own, in, in which we, I take a paragraph from uh, a text that we are studying that uh, the class will write papers on, and then I ask them to find a favorite sentence that really speaks to them in that paragraph, and then to underline it, and then they have to extract that paragraph, uh, that that uh, that sentence, and then uh, cut it even further to get down to the juicy bits that are really quotable, and get rid of all of the other stuff, and and then. The next step is to paraphrase the paragraph, and then the final step is to integrate the bits of quoted material into their paraphrasing. So this is a multi-stepped, multi-tasked uh, uh, exercise, which everybody gets an A on. It's just that some people get an A immediately, and some people take all semester to get an A on it. But my uh, thought here is that that it's a it's a learned sort of thing, um, quotation, and um, uh, and that this prevents a, it, it it increases the uh, self consciousness about it, and it kind of relates to what I was saying today about uh, knowing the boundaries of between text and text, and you and and the you that you want to be quoting, or the version you want to be quoting. Um, and I encounter plagiarism or the, the question of plagiarism uh, in the, the fair use discussion to distinguish between what would be fair uh, as uh, non-infringing and uh, what would be fair as uh, ethically, academically, uh, morally. Um, so. Uh, students are often uh, under uh, academic codes of honor or um, re requiring them to, to behave ethically. Uh, of course, whenever they are writing, um, they're uh, required to give proper attribution to their sources. And it's a tr tradition that um, comes, uh, fits well with the sort of precedential nature of legal decisions that uh, you often give your decision weight by uh, citing your sources and giving them uh, explicit acknowledgement. Uh, but uh, students uh, do still get the warning that just because you could justify your uh, unattributed quotation as uh, too little of the original work to qualify as a copyright infringement, uh, that doesn't mean that it's uh, ethically acceptable to include it in your paper without a reference to its original source. Another thing that I tend to 
uh, do with this is um, is is not um, not to beat uh, people with a stick too much uh, in terms of their ethical obligation. I think that that's the first thing you say, and then you move on. Um, at least, in in my view, that what's also at stake here is a certain kind of critical thinking. And whatever course I, I end up teaching, I'm always, in some ways, teaching critical thinking. And part of uh, uh, the problem with plagiarism is, is a, a total and utter, utter surrender of one's um, critical self to, to this other text. And um, so I, I, I try to put it in terms with my students uh, um, that, that they're here to, to learn the, the critical language uh, of discourse, and that, that, and that part of that is, is uh, the use of sources and, uh, and quotation. And, but basically, it's your argument. And, it, and when you steal someone else's text, and you're, who are you? What, have you? you know, what have you done for yourself? What have you done to yourself? So, um, in a way, uh, that is a pretty heavy thing. I mean, it, it's a, it is a burden that you put on yourself and you put on your students, but... Um. Hi. Um, so, uh, this is a question for John, and it has um, less to do with what you were saying, which I, I very much appreciated, but... Um, <laughs> That's fine. Kind of I get that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of how the language that you were, you were couching it in, and it's, it's also inspired by kind of the second half with Wendy. Um, but this idea that um, that we have different versions of texts and that what, for instance, Melville is doing with Beale is actually pulling quotes and kind of use the word um, cutting and pasting, uh, which I'm doing a little work on right now. So I was very mm. curious or interested to hear you say that. And I'm kind of wondering if, if instead of that this actually ends up almost essentializing the media form and turning it back into like there's, there is the book and then there is the movie and these are each separate, completely separate entities, um, less embedded in a cultural milieu that can then be cut, one thing can be cut, you know, a few words can be cut and then paste into another text. And um, I'm wondering, and you use the word quotation a lot, so, um, and I might be completely wrong about this, but I, I remember the history of quotation being something along the lines of originally uh, in, for instance, manuscripts before printed books, quotations would have been um, what was spoken and then later on became, slowly became, after printed books, what was textual. So there's kind of a weird thing there going on with, with almost the printed book enacting some kind of, uh, having some kind of influence on, on, the, on the notion of quotation itself and cut, cut and paste itself. So, and I was also wondering if, if just in general you think this is something that, like is this how we read and write in general? Like we're all using, we're all cutting and pasting other people's texts. We're all speaking with the words of other people in some sense. And so when we end up saying, uh, you're pulling these specific three words, do we end up saying that this media form is somehow bought, done by, produced by an original author, and then now, you know, we're taking that original author's words and putting it into our original author's kind of, you know, the creative genius model. It, it, does my question make sense? I know that's a lot to throw out there. Was it a question? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just a question about what... I'm fascinated. About how, about, you think about how you think about the use of quotations in the text. Like, do you think about this as, you know, we're all existing in a general culture in which there's certain phrases that are, you know, and certain ideas that are, yeah. are going to infiltrate how yeah. we think and how we write about text, even the idea 
to take it a step out, that we're talking about the quotation and cut and paste is maybe a product of the printed book and a product of the yeah. milieu in, in which we live. And what's your name again? Whitney. Uh, Whitney, yeah. Well, I think you're, I think you're, uh, you're, you're, you're touching on the whole kettle of fish. You know, and I mean that literally. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't mean to essentialize anything, but it is a kettle of fish, and and they're all swimming around in there. And it's called the the, the language, and and it's something that uh, that we share. And, and uh, but uh, and I think part of the problem with the law is that it perceives sharing as a, a, a shared possession, which is the language. Uh, the law is is in, a, in a, is attempting in some sort of way to um, make ownership decisions about it, and it can go too far or not far enough, and I think that's the burden of of, of Wendy's uh, remarks. Um, at the moment, they, it seems to be going too far, but um, what uh, what I think is happening here is though. It's that um, in order to begin to make a kind of critical analysis of anything, you need hypothetically to begin to start making distinctions and definitions. Uh, for me, the thing to define is aversion, but I don't have any strict and rigid definition of what aversion is or must be. It is something that evolves and um, and. Uh, it can be that it evolves uh, in ways, a text can evolve in ways it can be revised, but really be the same thing. So even though it has a lot of revision in it, it, it may just be one version. Um, but um, there comes a time in which um, the individual writer is, I think, drawing out of the pool of language, out of this kettle of fish, and he's taking this fish and this fish, in other words, uh, and, and there are words. but. Um, the thoughts are coming from that writer and might manifest itself in language that has been drawn from another source. But I think the issue of the creative act and then the appropriative act can be distinguished. There are moments in which I, I was attempting to do with, um, with the first set of slides that I was showing that there is there is a kind of distinction. So I think it's important in, in a way, if only for the sake of, of discourse, which can be a constructed and artificial thing, mind you, that, that we, we try to discern um, one fish from another. I don't know if that responds to it. Did you want to? Um, well, if, if I can. Uh, think about this in legal terms, uh, what comes to mind is uh, the, the copyright distinction between uh, idea or an expression or fact and expression. Um, and you might, and uh, some people ask, can a previous expression ever become fact in later expression? Uh, so the quotation that's referred to uh, as a point of reference uh, about uh, the, the artwork that has become public art, the news story, uh, or the broadcast that has become part of the debate, um, is something that later authors and commentators need to make their argument. Um, 
And so even though it still embodies the expression of the original speaker, uh, a second speaker might take it as fact. Uh, and uh, the law doesn't, um, d despite that argument being made, uh, doesn't often recognize the, the multiple uses that uh, a work of expression can have. Hi. I have about 100 questions, but I'll just try to limit myself my to a few. No, it's actually, this is for John, and it continues what you were just saying. Um, and the language that you use when you're talking about distinguishing, like how we draw, make distinctions, it seems to me that what's always going to happen is an inability to escape this celebration of individual expressivity. I mean, if if what you're doing is searching for the individual political will of the author that will distinguish their work as an intertextual engagement with some other work as opposed to just uh, plagiarism, for instance, then the foundation of that analysis is still the expressive individual will of the solo author which, whenever it's distinguished, will continue to support the copyright regime, right? In some sense, how can you get out of the model of copyright unless you emphasize, in some way, the social production of all authors and authorial concepts? And this um, then extends the question to Wendy, because I was curious if you thought, you kind of gestured toward this near the end of your presentation, that. Um, by talking about the photographer, uh, Manny, that it's, it's possible that if we look to some artists, probably not authors, who have always had a really strong hand in the copyright regime for very obvious reasons, um, but that if you look to Manny, the photographer, his interest is actually esteem and prestige, not um, wealth that he can generate from that. And that might be, or at least I've heard some legal theorists suggest that a way that intellectual property as a regime can be reformed is through more emphasis on esteem and less emphasis on wealth, um, which, you know, something we as academics, we kind of know uh, very well that it works. <laughs> so Whether we um, want to or not. Right. So those are my, my questions. Um, I think, uh, as I understand what you're what you're saying, um, there is um, uh, oh, oh. I, I don't think I intended to go in the direction that that you uh, have articulated. Uh, in fact, I um, was, in a sense, hoping to demonstrate that Melba was, in a sense, having maybe privately a discourse with another writer, mm -hmm. and that that although I didn't. I didn't develop it, but would have or could have. That is, in a sense, a kind of collaborative effort. Um, when you take a look at um, the um, um, the versions of Taipei, Melville's first novel that I alluded to a little bit, and talked about how he uh, had to uh, submit to an expurgation, a completely expurgated edition of Taipei, which cut out about 15% uh, of the text and removed uh, a lot of sexual passages and a lot of political and religious passages. 
he was complicit in that. He wrote to his, uh, he, he did this for an American edition, but he wrote to his British publisher and said, please accept these cuts. I think it'll make a better narrative. I think it will sell. Um, modern scholars have looked at the data and said, he only wrote that letter to his British publisher because he, um, he w wanted to make more money. And that invalidates the expurgations and that whole edition. Therefore, we will not acknowledge that, and we will only edit from, from what we feel is the author that should be coming through. Now, my uh, approach to editing is to validate all of these versions and also to acknowledge that by writing that letter, we have evidence of Melville collaborating with his own expurgators. And so it is more of a collaborative kind of thing, which I think gestures towards your notion of community rather than sole authorship. Fluid text editing is an attempt to provide a distinct alternative to modern textual editing, which uh, is has been designed since since the 30s and 40s to to uh, valorize the intentions of the single author, and I I don't see the beat of that. So, is that? And uh, to, to, to your second point, uh, I think you're right in identifying that the copyright law has tended to work toward making the intellectual property an alienable commodity, something that can be transferred and sold, uh, and often is. So the photographer here had uh, transferred the copyright he would have uh, as taker of the photograph to Associated Press, which uh, might... Uh, then license it out and uh, have distinct interests from the photographer. Um, and uh, I, I think that we're uh, perhaps seeing in some of the opposition to copyright on the Internet uh, a desire to push back toward uh, a more relational understanding of the value of uh, expressive works. Um, and uh, the, the bands that are successfully fighting against the piracy of their works on peer-to-peer -peer networks uh, are, that are continuing to have success in selling uh, works are those who uh, take the effort to go beyond just selling with a one-click uh, through the iTunes music store, but uh, establishing a relationship with their fans. Uh, Radiohead setting up a website and inviting fans to tell us how much you're willing to pay for uh, the work. Uh, and uh, by doing that, not just sort of express your uh, ability to click and pull out a credit card, but your interest in a relationship with the band. And while some people paid nothing, others paid uh, more than they would have uh, to get the equivalent digits uh, burned into a, a CD. Um, and so uh, artists who uh, engage in more of that uh, relational understanding of their creations, uh, I think, may find more success in uh, enforcing their rights um, in the digital and networked environment. Hi. Um, 
So I'm particularly interested in fan fiction, which is the borrowing of copyrighted characters or worlds for use in new stories. And most often these include disclaimers that say, you know, we don't own these characters, we're not trying to make any money off of them, and so on. And in the last couple of years, there's really been this movement to say fan fiction is not plagiarism, it is a transformative work that is taking what exists and doing something entirely new with it. So I'm wondering, as somebody who studies text and literature and, you know, group authorship, and someone who studies the law, how you see its place in these debates, and I guess also whether this would change if fan fiction authors were trying to make money off what they do. Um, well, from a legal perspective, well, we haven't had uh, lots of tests through the courts of, uh, of fan fiction. Um, it would tend to be analyzed if it got there uh, as uh, a potential derivative work that uh, characters and uh, the, the settings created for them are copyrightable expression and uh, the author uh, of the original is granted by copyright law the right to make sequels and uh, new versions. Um, is that uh, necessarily the right way uh, for it to happen? Um, Possibly not. Uh, the, the fan communities are also creating something new, uh, offering us alternate perspectives that the original author uh, wouldn't have authored, uh, have chosen, didn't choose, uh, perhaps didn't think of, perhaps didn't want to think of. Um, so that the legal case that I uh, can think of uh, that comes closest uh, is the, the the one of the wind done gone. Uh, the uh, Alice Randall's uh, sequel or uh, adaptation uh, of the story of uh, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. She gave uh, Scarlett O'Hara uh, a slave-born half-sister and uh, told the story uh, of Gone with the Wind th through her eyes, uh, emphasizing, of <coughs> course, racial conflicts and uh, taking the story further into uh, history, some of the racial uh, emancipation, taking familiar settings in order to give the audience more of a view of uh, racial conflict and the issues that were created uh, randomly for uh, black people who had grown up reading only Margaret Mitchell's view of uh, the Old South. Uh, so she was taking public uh, or a story that had clearly become part of public consciousness uh, to tell her own story. Uh, the first court to look at it, the district court, found that that was an infringement of copyright and wanted to uh, enjoin its publication. Uh, and the appeals court uh, happily saw things differently, saw <laughs> that there were important First Amendment interests <laughs> in being able to retell uh, this story uh, and declared it a fair use. Uh, so it might be that fans could draw on similar uh, strains of recasting the ideas and uh, needing to use some of the <coughs> expression from the original uh, in order to tell uh, their own stories. Well, you know I'm a, um, a Melville scholar, so I have a vested interest in some of the things that I'm about to say. Um, I would... Uh, if somebody came to me and said they wanted to, 
who do a fan fiction of Moby Dick, I would pay them to do it. I would do anything I could to do that, you know, to get that to happen. Um, I'm pretty sure it already has. And, <laughs> well, it, and then the second thing I want to say is, unfortunately, it has happened. I, uh, <laughs> as an editor, I get submissions of, uh, look, I have rewritten the, um, the, you know, the 23rd chapter of Moby Dick and um, uh, in iambic pentameter. <laughs> and uh, and I, I have to write back a, a nicely crafted rejection slip saying this is really wonderful stuff, but it's really not for us. But um, because it really is dreadful. But um, <laughs> uh, but you know, obviously the you know the 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 thing that uh, we in my profession would deeply want to see happen is that uh, Melville would be become such a such a thing that people would want to re-inhabit the text to the degree that they could rewrite it and as as uh, as you said uh, it has happened and it does happen it's usually Moby Dick but also sometimes it's Bartleby sometimes it's um, Benito Serino sometimes it's um, uh, Billy Buck but um, it really I think is is kind of a uh, uh, an homage to to the writer that people want to 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 rewrite, they want to revise, and there's nothing insidious about it. Um, I think one of the things that's different between Moby Dick and Gone with the Wind is that there is no Melville estate, and there you have it. I mean, there's just going to be people in the public saying, "I I can have a piece of that," and where's my lawyer? And they make a they make a bid, and they win, but then they lose, and then you know it's. It's part of the community discourse. I, I liked what you said, uh, Wendy, when you when you said that uh, the law is just not really being able to keep up with the community, um, uh, the community understanding of fair use. And I think bringing that notion of community into the discourse is is really very important. What you Yes, and we have the benefit of uh, Moby Dick being written long enough ago that its text has entered the public domain and we're all free to, to do with it uh, as we like, even if it's to make bad poetry of it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, whereas uh, most works from 1923 onwards uh, are still under the shackles of copyright uh, and much more restricted. But that's just an arbitrary legal distinction. You know, yeah, <laughs> that you know really uh, drives me nuts. Hi, so I had a question um, about uh, ignorance when it comes to. I have a question about ignorance too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the academic domain, and then also about independent um, like innovation in like a, a much more general sense. So, what do you have any thoughts about? Um, Within academia, as professors, their responsibility to, to consider students' ignorance of like certain thoughts on a, a particular topic when it comes to saying uh, like leveling an, a plagiarism accusation or saying like I think you you might be drawing from X source, um, but then also within a general domain of how how do how do you handle when people independently come up with the same idea and like who whose idea is it yeah. then? Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons I, I try to approach plagiarism from a kind of um, technical angle is to kind of begin with a kind of uh, leveling of intelligences. That is, we're not really here 
to um, to steal, but we're here to express. And if your expression happens to sound like an idea that uh, is, is over here, well, that's that's fine. That's going to happen all the time. I want my students to feel safe in a classroom and feel safe in their uh, ability to write and and competent in their ability to write. And and by the end of the semester, to begin to flex their their abilities and stretch their voice and you know get in, in a critical framework. You know, I, it, it's not creative writing. It is a kind of essays critical writing, which I think can be very creative, very expressive. It needs to be open. People need to be free to do that. Um, but, um, uh, and if you sort of stress that and say, look, I'm here to help you to learn about American literature, learn about the 19th century, learn about these sorts of things, but also to learn about who you are and where your voice is and in your writing and get your writing better, then it, uh, I hope it kind of uh, telegraphs to to, to my students in the classroom that, that their obligation is to their own self-expression. And um, uh, if they attempt to, to steal and represent that in a, in a kind of pernicious way, then I will come down on them like, you know, uh, like the authoritarian god I am. <laughs> but that doesn't happen as much. Um, if you kind of sort of lay, lay out the terms from the beginning. I mean, people are tempted to do that. Um, um, and, but then some people, are, some people feel they're going to do it from the time they, you know, they get in. I have, I've been lucky, I think. I don't you know, have too much. But uh, you know, I don't know if that's, that's a good question, I think. I have, a, uh, I have a question for Wendy that, that speaks to some of the things John said. I think the, the examples you gave make a point uh, through visual uh, media that it's harder to see with um, print uh, adaptations, and that is about branding. And I wondered if you could say something about that. I was interested in the fact that Shepard Ferry um, located the, uh, showed us the Obama logo on his lapel. <laughs> And then in these reversions you give us here, we see that Shepard Ferry has become a brand. Uh, the use of those colors <laughs> and that kind of contrast is itself now a kind of logo. Uh, and I wondered if um, John was saying that appropriation can have a critical as well as a creative um, uh, uh, line. Uh, did you, did, I don't know all of the controversy around Shepard Ferry, but was there a sense that he was not only producing an homage towards Obama, but he would also perhaps be either criticizing his use of the logo or competing with his logo in the way he adapted some elements of that logo, like the pale blue and the, and the red, to his own art. So is Shepard Ferry being critical in the way he uses these visual images? Um, I think you're right to, to identify sort of lots of appropriation uh, in Shepard Ferry's art. I mean, his other uh, art is, is um, and the Associated Press uh, answer and counterclaim in the lawsuit uh, lays out lots of other examples of Ferry's art trying to make the point that he is just shamelessly copying from uh, other places time after time. Um, but uh, by, uh, in these images, 
uh, appropriating from multiple sources, uh, I think he is also working a transformation. He's taking the patriotic symbols that we see. Uh, he's taking the Obama logo that we uh, were already seeing everywhere. He's taking a particular image uh, of Obama uh, and combining them into something that, if it sh shows us the candidate in a new light, uh, it is serving the purpose that uh, that art uh, is often said to, to be meant to serve. Uh, and if he then takes the art and commercializes it by putting it onto T-shirts or uh, selling posters, I don't think that changes the underlying uh, nature of the art. Uh, it, it may even help to get more people to see it and more people to participate uh, in that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I would second that, I, but I would I would say that if you put it on a T-shirt, you are creating another version. Uh, mm -hmm. You're creating a, a significantly different kind of statement. Um, what I think is going on in, with Shepard Ferry, um, uh, too, is is a kind of um, taking a slick AP snap and turn and and applying to it a kind of oh. Art historians will have to correct me on this, a kind of uh, 1915 style, graphic style that um, oh, is very radical, uh, a kind of radical, anar almost anarchistic poster style that that started in the, can anybody help me with this? What I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's, Soviet, yeah, sorry, sorry? Well, it's, it, it, it wasn't a, the woodcut. It was more like the Soviet style of, of radical. They were woodcuts. And those were woodcuts. Okay. Um, and, and that kind of deep, heavy um, print um, style. To impose that on AAP Slick, it seems to me just in itself a kind of statement, um, a critical statement, no matter what the image is, whether Obama is looking up or looking down. Or, you know, that, that, that in itself is... is is, a, is a, a, an amazing transformation. So um, uh, I think there is a critique when that's going on there with, with just that. Um, I'm really interested in how software might impact our future understanding. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, in the case of Melville, I really like how it confounds this sense that uh, authors that you read in high school are above plagiarism. <laughs> and above derivation or transformation, yeah, and it, it gives them a little bit more life to to suggest that they were in conversation with contemporaries. So I'm imagining uh, a piece of software that doesn't exist right now that could analyze enormous amounts of text and find some of the connections that you found between Beale and uh, uh, Melville and what impact that might have. And the very the slightest suggestion that I see so far is in the case of the content identification on YouTube, it's, it's amazing like the breadth of videos that are swept into that net and tells us a lot about how far-reaching transformation can be. So I'd be interested to hear from both of you just speculation on what culturally and legally might happen were we to suddenly foreground the, the prevalence of these types of transformati transformative and derivative works. Well, I've been thinking a lot about this too, <laughs> um, and um, because it seems to me that if you really want, in some sort of way, to uh, bring up the consciousness that we have beyond high school 
to uh, an understanding that texts are versions and that versions are talking to each other in some kind of way, then you need, uh, you, you, you need a different kind of reading. And it's, uh, while it's print-based in, in a sense, it can't really be fully uh, achieved unless it's digitized. One needs to be able, in, uh, in a glance, to be able to see the differences of, uh, from one version to the next and to be able to sequentialize the shift because these things occur in time. This is not, it's not on top of each other. It's, it's really um, sequentialized. Um, and uh, one comes before the other and so on and so forth. And that's important, too, to get the, get the kind of sequencing. So that, uh, and then you need, a, you need to, to be able to tell the story of the sequence. So I have um, developed a kind of um, protocol, uh, editorial protocol, that, that talks about locating revision sites, places where revisions have taken, has taken place, and then a revision sequence that lays out the steps that might have occurred, and then a revision narrative which tells the story. Um, that's a little bit pushing the envelope in terms of my critical brethren and cistern um, because the uh, critical community, no, S-I, yeah, not, not C-I, uh, uh, it's a different kind of system. Um, because the critical community just really doesn't want to hear the word narrative. They're beginning to kind of get back to it, but narrative suggests a master narr narrator. It suggests an imposition of colonial uh, ideology on, on this and so on and so forth. But, but um, I think there's nothing more delicious and liberating than a narrative if you know that you're doing a narrative and don't, don't think that it's the only narrative. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a textual kind of thing. But what happens when you get beyond the, the word changes into adaptations and, and film versions? So I would love to imagine an edition, uh, uh, an electronic edition of Moby Dick that would have the American version and the British version, which was ex expurgated, and then um, uh, John Barrymore's film version and John Huston's film version and the screenplay by Ray Bradbury and quotations by Edward Said, and you're able to click here and see all those moments together. And if you can develop that that software for me um, <laughs> by tomorrow, when I <laughs> when I would be deeply indebted. It's coming. These things are happening. Yeah. Yeah. So the question calls to mind for me: uh, Ted Nelson's Xanadu. Yeah. Uh, with its vision of being able to trace and uh, he thought even to uh, assign payment potentially down all of the paths of attribution. Um, and, um, but the, the, the graphical representation would be fascinating to be able to trace all of the pieces from one level of borrowing back to the sources of uh, its sources. Um, and uh, especially if we could decouple the, uh, some of these content identification tools from a uh, rapid demand for takedown that often follows when uh, YouTube's audio uh, fingerprint tools discover a snippet of music used anywhere on the site, um, the identification of itself is an interesting uh, 
fact that is useful input into the analysis of whether the work is uh, a transformation or a mere uh, reproduction and market substitute. Uh, and uh, so I think the technology uh, can be used to help us get a better understanding and appreciation of the artistry um, and shouldn't only be used to, uh, to, to give us claims of infringement. Uh, incidentally, the Associated Press uh, says that even uh, its comparison of the photos uh, and the, the Shepard Ferry artwork was done by some mysterious un unnamed software tool, uh, which, which they used to give their, uh, their counterclaim uh, some additional weight, it seems, because, of course, software doesn't lie. Um, but they neglect uh, that software can only tell us half the picture. Uh, it can't tell us whether there's infringement uh, or fair use, since those are questions for humans to make, uh, analyzing all of the factors uh, and the context of the use. So, so I want to continue with the Shepard Ferry discussion and sort of note that one of the, that to some degree, appropriation was a central trope of the Obama campaign, that if we want to talk from the 1984 advertisement that was at the beginning of the campaign through the Obama girl, through, uh, yes, Will I Am's uh, video down through Shepard Ferry, that a large part of our image of Obama was constructed through appropriation and remix, that Obama's campaign rhetoric was one that encouraged us to do it, and a large part of his appeal to young voters in particular was his openness to being appropriated and giving a sense of ownership, connection and, uh, to the campaign through the ability to appropriate and recirculate that image. And that seems to me a, an important context for thinking about the specifics of then AP asserting uh, ownership over the image of Shepard Ferry, that it's, it's part of this larger political practice. Because in theory, there are photographs in the Obama girl videos that could have been prosecuted. The news footage of the Will I Am video presumably comes from a network of some sort. That if, if we're going to make the candidate's image accessible to the people to remix, it's going to be mediated through some channel. The candidate may want to himself be his image, his icon be appropriate, but we only have access to it through media images constructed by other, other people. So do we lose the ability to engage with the candidate in this new way? If we create a legal system, if the legal system steps in and reads all of that as, you know, copyright infringement rather than as fair use. Um, <laughs> to to answer that uh, that last bit of question, yes, I think we we would absolutely d destroy the the political debate if we uh, were to to read the law that way. Um, and so part of the reason that I like these political examples uh, is I think that they tell us. In, in terms that even non-artistic judges can understand why the law can't possibly work that way. Uh, that uh, core to our notions of free speech and First Amendment uh, are political discourse, and that has to take priority over uh, claims of ownership and uh, claims of appropriation. If we need these images to participate in the pol political conversation, 
we can't let that conversation be stopped by uh, some allowing someone to come in and say, no, I own that interview, I own that footage. Um, the political bias that could come out of that, if uh, if copyright claims were used to, to support one candidate or point of view, um, and the, the closure to uh, the independent public debate, since not all of us are standing out there with video cameras at the places that the candidates uh, assemble. It, it's mostly the, the, the networks who have the cameras there, who have access to the initial filming of the candidate. They can't be telling us, uh, and the law shouldn't be telling us, uh, only they are privileged to engage in this kind of multimedia conversation. I mean, isn't that the, the basis of democratic government, that yeah, the people appropriate their leaders? They're our leaders. So we own them, at least theoretically. They're, they do what we want. <laughs> okay, enough of the fantasy. <laughs> but to, to a certain extent, I think that's the extension, uh, you know, to extend what you're saying into the actual fundamental theory of democratic government. I think that's it for questions. Thank you both. This has been a really wonderful Thank discussion. You. Thank you.